0: Well, it's good to see all of you. Um, happy Lord's Day, and uh, we've, got, we've got the apostolic beard section over here. I love that. Uh, <laughs> um, we are going to look at Deuteronomy today. This is Module 1, Session 8, for those who are listening online. So let's pray, and we're going to walk through Deuteronomy together. Our Father, thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for the Lord's Day how exciting it is to think on Christ, to just stop everything else, to let life uh, walk by and we just get off the, the merry-go-round, so to speak, Lord, and stop and consider our Lord. We stop and consider the Word of God. We sing together. We pray together. We are thankful to gather together, Lord. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ, and no man dictates to the church, you have dictated to the church. You have given us the glorious, amazing privilege of gathering together to be your representatives on this earth, Lord. May we be faithful to do so. Thank you for Bible Training Institute and this time that we have to now this morning look at the book, book of Deuteronomy. We pray that it would be useful to all who are here and all who are listening and that it would be glorifying and honoring to you, Lord. Help us to be accurate for the sake of truth and to speak into the hearts of lives that need to follow after Christ and need to obey the word of God to their own blessing, to their own benefit. and We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so if you have read through Deuteronomy or maybe um, done your uh, scanning, if it sounds like a sermon to you, it's because it pretty much is. And so we'll talk about that in a little bit, but it, it, it preaches really well because it is a record of the preaching of Moses. So we'll start just with the, the basics here. The, um, we won't start with... Okay, the, the arrows aren't working. There we go. Well, anyway, uh, Aaron will help me with that, I'm sure. So we'll start with the introduction, and let me see if this thing's working now. Oh, there we go. Oh, now it's working in spades. The Hebrew title is, These Are the Words. That's a much better title, actually, Um, remember, the titles of Bible books aren't necessarily inspired. They're just titles that that men assign to them. Uh, The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, calls it the second law. Translate that into Latin, you get Deuteronomy. The second law, it's not really a good title because it's not a second law. It's not that at all. It's an exposition and an explanation of the law of God, which was given 39 years earlier or so at Mount Sinai. So it's not a second law. It is given, however, to the second generation. It's given to the second generation in preparation for entering Canaan. So for the first time in their history, Israel as a nation, their very brief history, they're only a 39-year history right now, because or almost 40 at this point. Yes, they were the sons of Jacob. They were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Egypt. But they weren't officially formed as a nation until Mount Sinai. So in their brief time as a nation, they were given the law. But think about this. They've been a nation for 40 years. They've never had a home. They've never had places to be. And so for the first time, they're not going to be a wilderness people. Now they're going to be a settled people. And Deuteronomy very much is to prepare them for that. And remember... Everyone that Moses is speaking to here, with the exception of a few men, have been born out in the wilderness. They don't know what it's like to have a home and to farm and to keep your your place. And they don't understand property rights and and the things that we take for granted as a society that's settled. And so they're not going to be a wilderness people now. And so what Deuteronomy is, is basically a long sermon explaining what was given at Mount Sinai four decades earlier and how it's going to be used now, how it affects them in the land. Which, by the way, side note, my little plug for dispensationalism over opposed to covenant theology is that if land is no longer a good promise that if land is now just the church or land is now uh, some sort of metaphor for the church of Jesus Christ in the world, then the book of Deuteronomy becomes essentially useless because the book of Deuteronomy is how to live in the land that God gives. And so that's just a little side note, and I would encourage you to think that through. When does this happen? The date of the events, 1406 BC. We're 39, 40 years from the The Exodus now, and everything in Deuteronomy takes place in the month, in the 30-day period. And then we get right into the conquest at that point. So let's look at the historical and theological themes, and they're fairly massive. The theme of the election of Israel. And we want to take a moment on this because uh, those who are anti-calvinist i saw this uh, the other day there's a church in our city right now um, where the pastor is preaching a series called defeating calvinism with scripture and i was like well that's going to be a really short series because calvinism is everywhere Um, we're not calvinists we're biblicists meaning that we believe that the bible is true Um, but john calvin simply quoted paul who quoted moses and this is so where do we get the idea of election those who are against election, uh, aside from the fact that it's a biblical term and the biblical concept, they'll point to one or two passages in the New Testament, try to explain them away. Well, it gets a lot harder than that, honestly, to explain away election in the Old Testament. So let's look at this. You have, first of all, in the election of Israel, a couple of subcategories here. You have Yahweh, your God, or Yahweh, our God, um, in, these, in 31 chapters, 300 times in Deuteronomy. Now why do we say this in connection to election? Because we want to start with the fact that, that the work of God is very much one-sided. It is a singular work. Monergism is the theological word we use which means the work of one. So you have Yahweh our God. He is the focus of everything. You have then the choice of Yahweh. And under this you have some subcategories. You have the choice of Yahweh of Israel multiple times chapter 4 chapter 7 chapter 10 chapter 14 i chose you i chose you i chose you i chose you there's never a sense in which israel chose god you have the the phrase the place for his name to dwell and who chose this place for his name to dwell he did ultimately this will be jerusalem in the temple in the holy of holies but this was his choice this is what he did Not only did he choose Israel, not only did he choose the place for his name to dwell, he chose, or he would choose, the king. Deuteronomy 17, 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. And then you have the priests. Those are clearly all chosen by God. So the choice of Yahweh, he chooses Israel, he chose the place for his name to dwell, he chose the king, he chose the priests, and then you have, of course, just the broad uh, category, the election of all of Israel. You have all of Israel listed multiple times and all kinds of variations on this idea. All the men of Israel, all the tribes of Israel, all the assembly of Israel, all the elders of Israel. So you have the, the Israel, the men of Israel, tribes of Israel, the assembly of Israel, the elders of Israel. All this is elected. This is given by God. Um, I, I think the word election for us in English is an unfortunate, uh, it's had a change unfortunately because it's, I don't think it conveys the idea that the New Testament really gives us but eklektos is the idea of God chose and so um, that's why we like to use the word choice and uh, it is not God chose those who would choose him, one of the pastors who discipled me years ago said that that's like throwing a dart at the wall and then drawing a circle around it and saying I hit a bullseye. It's backwards. If God chose, he chose. If he didn't, he didn't. But he did choose. He chose Israel. He chose the place for his name to dwell. He chose the king. He chose the priests. And then all of Israel, the men of Israel, tribes of Israel, the assembly of Israel, the elders of Israel. So you have election. You could teach the doctrine of election very adequately from the book of Deuteronomy alone. And so that would be an interesting theological challenge sometime. Then you have the attributes of Yahweh. You could also do a study in theology proper from Deuteronomy alone. Moses speaks consistently about the character of God. There's more spoken about the attributes of God than in any other portion of the Torah, more than in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, or Numbers. So all the other portions of Scripture that speak of God's character, uh, Psalms, Isaiah, the the big sections in our Old Testament that give us our theology proper, you can trace them all back to Deuteronomy. It is the basis. uh, The the rabbis of old, when they wanted to know and understand God, they studied Deuteronomy. You have Deuteronomy making propositional statements about the character of God. Now, a propositional statement is a statement that has a subject and it states a truth about that subject. It's very simple. Uh, For example, Deuteronomy 4.24 says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous, jealous God. The subject is the Lord your God, and the statement about, of truth is he's a consuming fire, he's a jealous God. So we get very, very easy to understand propositional statements, propositional truths about God. So I just listed a few here for you. He is said to be unique and jealous. Why would we put those two together? I put unique and jealous together very simply because the uniqueness of God speaks to the holiness of God and what has he said to those who would follow him? Be holy, why? Because I am holy. Therefore, if he is unique, he is jealous for his people to be unique with him, to be holy along with him. He said to be faithful, That what he says he's going to do, he does. He always keeps his word. And when he commits himself to a people, when he commits himself to those who would follow after him, then he will always be faithful to them. I'm always curious when uh, immature believers or those who claim to know Christ uh, use this kind of old cliche that the New Testament shows the God of love and the Old Testament shows the God of wrath. That's just ignorant. Because you read through Deuteronomy and you see God is love. He is loving. He is kind. He says in uh, chapter 7, Why did I form Israel? Because I set my love on her. And I chose her out of love. Some will also say, Well, the Old Testament is about law. And the New Testament is about grace. Eh, There's a little bit of truth to that. But frankly, you read through Deuteronomy. And you see the graciousness of God all over the place. It's in chapter 1. It's in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 7. I mean, we could just go on, just pretty much pick a chapter and you see the graciousness of God. Sometimes it's indirect, sometimes it's directly stated. But he is a God who judges as well. His wrath and his grace are not counteracting one another. They are uh, all part of his character. So he is a God who judges. So he's unique and jealous, he's faithful, he's loving, he's gracious. He is a judging God. And so I would encourage you sometime to read through the, the three dozen, almost three dozen chapters in Deuteronomy and just read it quickly and look for the character traits of God. And you'll find if you're a note taker, you could fill up a couple pages of notes just on God's character, the attributes of God. But then, of course, it is a, it's not a second law. It's an explanation of the law. And so it restates the law in many ways. So we have the theme of the requirements of Israel. The requirements of Israel, and here's kind of a broad overview. The requirements of Israel, they are to fear God. And this always is the starting point. If you hear a gospel presentation that says you should love God, you can't love him until you have first feared him. Because now you're coming to God on your own terms. You must fear him. And so, um, if you've ever heard the idea of fearing God downplayed as well, what it really means is respect. No, it doesn't. Both Hebrew and Greek means to be afraid of. In Greek, phobos, phobia. Like, I'm terrified of God. That's where you must start. And that's where God insists that Israel starts. That's not a, that's not a bad thing. That's not counterintuitive uh, with grace. It's not counterintuitive with love. I want my children, especially when they're young, I want them to love me, but they will love me only when they first fear me. Because ultimately, and I, I've done a lot of parenting help with people if a father will not engender fear in his children, they will ultimately stop loving him. Just wait for him to get old enough, they'll resent him because they weren't able to fear him. Another issue for another day. The requirement of Israel, bar none, number one is fear God, fear Yahweh. If you fear him, then the logical next step is to love him. Now some would say, well, It's not really love if it's a requirement. I need to just love of my own accord. How many of you love of your own accord naturally? You do. You love yourself of your own accord. That's it. Why do we have the command, husbands, love your wives? It's not, husbands, if your wife does the right thing, And if she makes herself look nice, and if she's really nice to you, and if you feel like it, and if the Spirit moves in you, then love your wives. It's just a command. Husbands, love your wives. Period, paragraph. What's there more to explain? And so we are commanded to love God. People of Israel are commanded to love Him. Love is a a decision you make, and it is characterized. How do you know that you're walking in love? How does God uh, prove that they are walking in love? He proves this by telling them, Keep my commands. What did Jesus say? If you love me, what? Obey my commandments. It's the same thing. You fear God first. That engenders love. Prove that you love God. How? By keeping his commandments. Then you have the requirement of walking in Yahweh's ways. So keeping his commandments is kind of a broad, general decision. I'm going to obey him. Well, I need to find out what those ways are. Walk in his ways. Um, In Scripture... The idea of a way is very simple. It is a one path versus another. And the path that we're to walk in, the way we're to walk in, is the path that God has given. It is not the way to say, husbands, love your wives if they do the right thing. God's way is husbands, love your wives. Period, paragraph, end of discussion. And you go back and forth between those two. Um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your what? Ways acknowledge Him um i've heard wacko sermons in all your ways acknowledge him it's very simple if the bible says do this then do it that's your way that's your way then you're to serve yahweh and so you see this progression here you you fear him you love him you prove that you love him by committing to keep his commandments you keep his commandments by walking in his ways doing the things that he that he would have you to do now you're freed up to serve now you're freed up to do things for the Lord. You're to serve him. Um, by the way, in scripture, the concepts of serving and worship are very much interchangeable. Whether we call what we do at 1045? A worship service. It's actually kind of an oxymoron. Or not an oxymoron, it's, a, it's, it's redundant. It's repetitive. So we're just making sure you understand it. We could just as easily call it a service worship. Either one. It is a worship service though. And so you serve Yahweh. Incidentally, if you're, not able to fear God, you're not a believer. But let's take it past that. Let's say you're fearing God, but you're having trouble loving Him because you're not keeping His commandments. You're not walking in His ways. You're disqualified to serve Him. Why? Why would you? Why would God want you trying to serve Him when you're not trying to walk in His ways first? And then you get to the relationship aspect of hearing and obeying Yahweh. I mean, Deuteronomy alone is just a how to walk with God. Um, really, a, a primer for us. Those are the requirements of Israel. Then you have the theme of the heart. And I want to talk about this for a minute because the heart is mentioned in Deuteronomy somewhere in the vicinity of three dozen times. And so that goes against the idea that the New Testament is all about what happens inside and the Old Testament is all about what you do on the outside. That couldn't be farther from the truth. This response of Fearing God, loving God, keeping his commandments, walking in his truth, serving Yahweh, and hearing and obeying him. That's an internal response. It starts inside. It is a response which comes out of the heart. It's exactly the same as the New Testament. Chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, God commands Israel, circumcise your hearts. Circumcise your hearts. In other words, God is looking for a change of heart. And then he also promises them in Deuteronomy 30, in the future, I will circumcise your heart. And we know that that's a, a broad reference to the coming new covenant, that Christ will give them a new heart. We're going to talk about that later um, today in detail. And so the heart is very much a, a big part of Deuteronomy. Then you have the theme of the possession of the land. Deuteronomy is basically about how to. <laughs> there we go. I, the best part when the microphone goes out is to see the look of panic in the in the sound booth. I just, I enjoy that thoroughly. Thank you guys for your service. Because they're so eager to serve. You know, some, some guys would just go, yeah, whatever, that's your problem. But they don't do that. Thank you for that. So, how to live in the land as God's people. Now, why is this important? This is so important because... The whole purpose of Israel, going back to Exodus 19, verses 4, 5, and 6, the purpose of Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. What do the priests do, they introduce people to God. And so Israel is to be a magnet to the world to say, we are different because of the God we serve, the singular God, which we'll talk about in Deuteronomy 6 here in a moment. Was there ever a time in Israel's history where they have been a magnet to other peoples to see, I want to serve your God? Very, very rarely. Partially under King David and probably mostly under Solomon. And other than that, Israel's problem was instead of attracting the world, they tried to do what? Be like the world. Sound like a familiar problem in the church of Jesus Christ? Let me put it this way. In the church, you will attract the world the most when you are the least like it. Did you catch that? We do want to attract the world, but we attract the world by being utterly different. If we try to be like them, we'll never keep up. Churches that try to entertain people, they'll never keep up with Hollywood. I mean, have you seen some of the shows that are put out now? You can't keep up with that. But churches that are different, then they will attract the world. And so it was extremely important that as the reputation of Israel as a a people that obeys a law given by God on a smoky, thundery mountain, that as they did these things, the nations around them would come and they would say we want to worship your god now in the new testament we're the opposite we're not attracting them as a magnet so to speak we're we're to go out um, and yet that's still through the church we go out into the world to attract people into the church very very interesting there's some similarities and some differences deuteronomy becomes now the basis from which god will judge israel and he even warns not if but when you violate my law here's what's going to happen Uh, You can read in Deuteronomy about when you violate my law, I'm going to come. Look at Deuteronomy 28 and 29, and you get these, these dozens and dozens of verses of how God is going to nail them, and he tells them exactly what they're going to do. So the idea behind Deuteronomy is for this younger generation to say, may this never come true. May God never have to fulfill this word. And then you have the theme of the death of Moses. You have the the death of Moses and the future leadership of Joshua. Moses speaks often of his own death in Deuteronomy. He's referring all the way back to Numbers 27, verses 15 through 23, when um, God told him that he would would die. By the way, uh, the last thing we see of Moses is that God takes him up to Mount Pisgah in February to show him the land he can't enter. In February, Mount Pisgah... February is the only month of the year that you can see all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Every other month of the year, there's either a haze or there's uh, other other uh, climate uh, climate issues that make it where you can't do that. It was the perfect time. You literally get up on the mountain and see an entire nation, and he got to do that. Moses did not die of old age. He didn't die of old age. God's desire for Moses to lead uh, was still true, but Moses was under God's judgment for his uh, sin for his own rebellion. It wasn't a permanent judgment. It was a temporal judgment, a one-time thing. But he did not die of old age. Now I'm just going to take a little side note here. This is not in my notes, but I want to uh, I want to clear something up. The book of Deuteronomy records the death of Moses. Who wrote Deuteronomy? Moses. Do we see a problem here? I don't see a problem at all. But liberal scholars will say, "Aha." Deuteronomy must have some secret source that the that 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 uh, priests and others in centuries way, way later, way after the events of Deuteronomy uh, wrote and put all together. And so some would date Deuteronomy like even a thousand years later than Moses writing. And they would say as one of their proofs, see, Moses can't write about his own death. Well, there's two easy Two easy solutions to this. First of all, it doesn't negate the authorship of of Moses if at the very end, somebody like Joshua tacks on, here's what happened to Moses. That that doesn't negate the authorship. You read books all the time that if it's written by one author and yet the foreword or a conclusion is written by a friend, it doesn't negate the authorship of that author. It doesn't say, well, this guy couldn't have written the whole book because there's this little part at the end. But how about this? Can you think of anybody else in the Bible that knew about, knew the details of, and predicted his own death over and over again? How about Jesus? He did that. Moses had already been told by God he was going to die. It is completely reasonable that God told Moses how he was going to die, and he simply wrote it in the past tense. It's that simple. So... That doesn't that doesn't prove that somehow Deuteronomy is not written by Moses. It just proves that we don't know who did that last little part, and that's fine. It could, there are many good solutions to that. So some big, big themes in, in Deuteronomy, and we'll put this together here in a purpose, and we'll really kind of give you two purposes. The first one is Moses exhorted Israel to be faithful to Yahweh and to the Israelite covenant so that she might go in and possess the land though he foretold that Israel would fail to obey Yahweh in the land. read that to you one more time. Moses exhorted Israel to be faithful to Yahweh and to the Israelite covenant so that she might go in and possess the land, though he foretold that Israel would fail to obey Yahweh in the land. And then also it serves as a reiteration of the covenant and a review of the law for the second generation. Now you think about this, most of these had never heard the law of God uh, in a formal setting. Uh, that we know of we're not told that they had and so now they're they're getting review Um, whenever anybody says hey I think I heard you preach this before I say well Moses did it so I can too Um, a good shepherd in the church of Jesus Christ reviews the most important truths over and over again Uh, I want you to say if you say hey I've heard you say this concept five times I'm doing my job that's the way it ought to be so review is good then you have the literary structure, um, and I, I'm just going to plow through this very quickly in, in very short form, and this will be available online. There's a number of ways to structure Deuteronomy. This is one, I think, is the most interesting way. Deuteronomy chapter five corresponds in its commandments to, uh, or in its, its commands to uh, all the Ten Commandments. And it is a restatement of the Ten Commandments with a few little details even added. Deuteronomy 12 through 25 now gives an exposition of each of those commandments. You shall worship the Lord your God only. And so you have that as as a commandment, but then you have uh, a whole chapter, chapter 12 about worship. You have uh, the third commandment, not taking the name of God in vain. Chapters 13 and 14, you have an exposition of those commandments. So I tell you this to say this, if you want to understand the Ten Commandments and how they're to be worked out in the lives of the Israelite and, and, um, and the, the, the moral and the philosophical and the, the uh, obedience factors that carry over into the New Testament, we'll talk about that in a moment, the concepts, um, all of these are concepts that we still hold to, then simply read chapter five, those are the commandments, and then read chapters 12 through 25 and that gives you a sermon on all Ten Commandments. So I just wanted to point that out to you that the structure is meant to teach you. It is meant to be applied. I want to take, do a section that we don't do in all the books, and that is just um, some features of the structure, the features of the book. This is very important, and in the spring, probably late January, we're going to preach through Deuteronomy, and we'll finish the Pentateuch. We started it a couple years ago, but we'll finish it up, and we'll see that the central theme of the way Deuteronomy is put together is the theme of covenant or treaty. This is an ancient Near East treaty format. What we've said before, a suzerain vassal treaty. You have the conqueror and the conquered. You have the big king and the little nation. So here's the format. It goes like this. You have the introduction of a speaker, of the speaker. For example, uh, in a Hittite Uh, Treaty. The Hittite king gives his credentials and his reasons for conquering the people. That it was for their benefit. This is what a king did. The king didn't say, "I'm conquering you because I'm going to crush you into the dirt." He said, "I'm conquering you because you're poor and you're weak and you need us to come over you." That's what politicians do, right? That I'm I need to be in office because you're. Poor, pitiful self. You can't figure out life on your own. So you need me who got a C minus as an average in college and have never actually had a real job. You need me to come in and help you. Well, if a conqueror has a bigger army than you, then he gets to say that. And so in this treaty, he would say, here's why I'm conquering you. Then you get an historical prologue. The historical prologue says, here's kind of how we got to where we are today. Then you have stipulations. Stipulations are if I'm going to bless you, here's the law, and you're given the law by the suzerain, the conqueror. Then you have a statement concerning the document. What are you supposed to do with it? Then you have witnesses. The witnesses traditionally were the gods of both peoples your gods and my gods. My gods are now bigger than your gods, proven by the fact that I conquered you. And then at the very end, you have curses and blessings. That's a typical uh, ancient Near East treaty formula. Well, Deuteronomy follows the same format, basically. Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 5, you have the introduction of the speaker. Chapters 1, verse 6, all the way through the end of chapter 3 is the historical prologue. Here's how we got to where we are. Chapters 4 through 26, the stipulations, the laws. Chapter 27, verses 2 and 3, you have a statement concerning the document. Chapters 31 and 32, you have the witnesses. Moses calls God to be the witness. And then, um, slightly out of order for most uh, treaties, chapter 28, you have the curses and you have the blessings. You have about, uh, if I remember right, 15 verses of blessings and about 50 more of curses. So it's really clear, obey or else. And so it's kind of neat that this follows that treaty covenant um, uh, sort of format. It's something that they would understand. It's something that they would get. But it's much more than just a treaty or a covenant. It's not technically a covenant because the covenant has already been made. This is a renewal of the covenant. This is a, uh, if we call it this way, uh, you, the refinancing of the house. You've already agreed to pay for the house. Now you're just refinancing it. And so it's a, it's a renewal document. And in the midst of the covenant renewal, there's an appeal. There's an, there's an exhortation. There is a pleading to receive the blessing of God, to fear God, to love Him, to obey Him. Um, Hittite treaties and other, other ancient Near East treaties never make those sorts of appeals. There's no love in those treaties. It's just, here's what we have to offer you. If you don't want it, you're dead. It's that simple. But God, in Deuteronomy, He appeals, He exhorts. And Moses appeals for obedience, even when he knows that they ultimately will not. Deuteronomy 31, 27, For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Jonathan Edwards, when he was kicked out of his own church, the reason he was kicked out of his own church in the 1700s is because he made a stand for the Lord's table. And he said, if you're not a Christian and you're not willing to be a member of the church, you cannot take the Lord's table. And they kicked him out for basically political reasons. And stupidly enough, they let him preach one more sermon. And if you read the final sermon of Jonathan Edwards in his own church, that thing is on fire. And basically, he says, you've done okay while I'm here. After I'm gone, who knows what's going to happen? And he was right. And so this is what Moses says. He says, you've rebelled even while I'm here, the prophet of God. And when I'm gone, I fear for what's going to happen to you. And so there's a pleading, there's there's an appeal, there's an exhortation, obey the Lord. A couple of little just structural features here. There are five speeches or sermons, some divide it into four, some divide it into five, not concerned about that. It's, uh, you can divide it however you want. The whole thing really is a sermon. The thrust of Deuteronomy is explanation followed by exhortation. Now, does that sound familiar? We saw this in Leviticus. It's the same pattern for many New Testament epistles. You have explanation followed by exhortation, imperatives. And where would Paul get the idea to have that pattern in his epistles? Well, from the Pentateuch, from Leviticus, from Deuteronomy. And so it's a a pattern well worth doing. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, the Puritans of old, the Puritan preachers in England, and then when they came to America, this was their singular sermon outline is they did doctrine and duty. And they would, uh, they would explain the passage. They would tell you all the theology behind it. And then they would say, here are the duties associated with it. Come back next week, same structure, over and over and over again. Well, let's look at a, a, a couple of interpretive issues here. And I always give you kind of the biggest ones, just so when you come upon them, you'll just at least hopefully have this in the back of your mind. We have the Shema. It's the Hebrew word for hear. And this is the classic phrase in Deuteronomy 6 for hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God. In Hebrew, Yahweh one. It's just Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. So how does this translate? I don't remember how it is in the in the ESV. Let me see here and I'll, just, I'll read it to you. But there's an issue on what does this mean? How is it being translated? Uh, how do you understand Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. In the ESV, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you get immediately the command, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And, uh, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. So what does this mean? Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. Because there isn't a verb in there. It doesn't say Yahweh is one. The English supplies that verb. So is it that Yahweh is our God Yahweh alone meaning he's unique there's no other God like him that's that's true is it Yahweh our God Yahweh is one as the ESV translates that would speak of wholeness of the unity of God some have even seen Trinitarian doctrine in this that Yahweh is one God made up of God the Father God the Son God the Spirit that's true You can't find that here just in this text, but some have applied Trinitarian doctrine to it. Is it Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one? That's more the traditional uh, interpretation. Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Is it Yahweh our God is one Yahweh, that there's only one God? Not just that he's unique, but there's only one God. Now, I know these these sound very, very close, but um, Dr. Dan Block I think has done the best work really in recent centuries on this and gives, I think, the best view, the best explanation. It's not, con- not difficult. He appeals to the context. Just like we do in every other Bible study, he appeals to the context. The context is explained in verses 5 through 8. You shall love the Lord your God. And so taking the context of you shall love the Lord your God and then applying that to Yahweh our God, Yahweh alone, God is the only true God. That's true. God is a singular God who calls for a singular commitment. Why is Moses giving this statement right now? What is the context historically? The context historically is that Israel is surrounded by polytheistic nations. And what he's calling for isn't just God is unique not calling for just that god is a unity that they wouldn't understand that yet um he's not calling for the fact just remember there's only one god and he's not even calling for just a a, a theological understanding what he's calling for is loyalty and it would go like this the reason it says yahweh our god yahweh one you can translate this legitimately yahweh our god yahweh alone And it was meant to be a battle cry. It was meant to be a cry of fidelity, of loyalty. Yahweh our God, Yahweh won. Yahweh our God, Yahweh won. Yahweh our God, Yahweh won. They had to do this. And if you remember the sermon I preached at the creation conference we did a couple of years ago, that's the whole purpose of Genesis 1 and 2, to tell Israel there is one God and you will be loyal to him. And so I think the best view Of the Shema is that it is a cry for fidelity and loyalty. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, Yahweh alone. Now, continuing revelation does reveal that God is one God in three persons but one God, but that's not the point here. The point is be loyal. I listened to a sermon by John MacArthur just recently on church membership. He just preached this like a a, a week or two ago and he gets to the loyalty reason and he just said, and I know this about him, I've heard him say this in person, he says, I love loyalty. He said, I can't think of anything I love more than loyalty because it has such a, a delightful connotation of the people of God loyal to God, the people of God loyal to one another. So what is the Shema? Yahweh our God, Yahweh alone, it is a cry for Be loyal, be uh, a a man, a woman of fidelity toward God. Now we need to talk about the nature of the law. And we shouldn't have to talk about this. But in about, uh, if I remember right, the 13th century and then picked um, picked up by John Calvin as well, the law has said traditionally to be divided. That there are three types of law. The moral law, those are the basics. Don't do this, do that. Ceremonial law, how these basics work themselves out in the Old Testament worship system, the priests, the sacrifices, the holy days, and so forth. And then you had the civil law. These are daily life issues. Who are you supposed to marry? Sexual behavior, children. How do you manage fields, property, boundary lines, uh, animals, warfare, Who do you obey in the the government and so forth? So you have the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. Well, that's nice, except if you had never read the Bible before and you read Deuteronomy, you would never come up with those distinctions because, and I've seen this proven in, in detail, that you could find in one sentence a moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law, and then find 10 scholars who all disagree which is which. And so there's not a clear delineation here. I'm going to tell you why this came about in a minute, but the best view is that it is a unified law. In the midst of one law, you can find moral, ceremonial, and civil elements. I'll give you a very easy example. Was the Sabbath law civil or ceremonial? Which one? The correct answer is both. Absolutely. It's a civil law in that you're not allowed to do certain things. You are not to work. Wouldn't that be great? A law that says you're breaking the law if you work hard on a certain day. That'd be awesome. But it was a ceremonial also, yes, because it was the symbol of God's uh, fidelity to his people and that they were going to trust him. So it was civil and ceremonial law. The Deuteronomy laws aren't organized this way at all. They're not even close. The law is not given for salvation, it's not given for deliverance, not given for redemption. That already happened at Sinai. Israel is already God's people. And so Moses isn't imploring them so that they can become God's people. Listen carefully. He's not begging them to obey so that they can become God's people. He's begging them to obey because they already are God's people. That's an important distinction. So what is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is it's a sanctifying purpose. It's to teach them to express their love for God by living a holy, set-apart life as a nation. The law is their expression of love. Jesus said it again. If you love me, do what? Obey my commandments. And so Deuteronomy is given for Israel's good, but it would also be the means by which their heart of rebellion is revealed How would they know that they're in rebellion? Because God can compare their actions to the law he's given them. That's rebellion. And so the law was good and Israel was not. That's the distinction. The law taught Israel that no matter how hard they tried to obey, they couldn't. They didn't have the heart to respond. And we learn in the New Testament that the law also serves the purpose of frustrating you in that you cannot please God. James 2.10, if you've broken one of God's laws, you're guilty of all. When did that happen? Probably pretty quickly after you were born. So the purpose of the law, it's a sanctifying purpose. Now, what does this have to do with these divisions, these artificial divisions? The artificial divisions were created, listen carefully, to allow parts of the Old Testament law to be binding on Christians in the New Covenant. That was why these divisions were created. Obviously, we're not sacrificing any lambs. Uh, we went through a count uh, when we were in the book of Numbers on how many animals were sacrificed every year, and it's in the thousands. We don't sacrifice anything. I mean, the closest we come is Thanksgiving, I mean, we sacrifice a turkey, and that's about it. We don't do that. And so those who love the Lord and are trying to understand how we're to obey God aren't going to bind us by saying, well, you have to sacrifice animals. You have to do all the things that are in the law. Well, what what am I supposed to do if if someone moves boundary stones? When was the last time you saw a boundary stone? And so in order to make parts of the law binding to the new covenant Christian, this distinction was invented. The moral law, ceremonial law, civil law, because what would they say? They would say that the ceremonial law and the civil law is passed but the moral law continues forward. Now, we understand that, and there's, there's good intentions behind this, but it's the same as, remember I used the refinancing your house uh, illustration? When you refinance your house, the contract that you sign, that you sign your life away, that you're paying this thing off to your 106, is essentially identical to the contract you signed the first time, Right? How good is the contract you signed the first time? It's completely null and void. It's irrelevant at this point. You can tear it up, even though it's almost identical. And so there's, there's that difference there. So we need to understand this. The Old Testament law no longer binds in the New Testament era. And this is very important because if, if the Old Testament law is still binding on us, then what did Jesus mean when he, when he said that I came to fulfill the law? He didn't say I came to abolish it. He said I didn't come to abolish it. It doesn't mean we're under it, it. just means that his law is perfect. But he said I came to fulfill it. We take the Lord's table. This cup, this, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It's not the revised covenant. It's not the slightly amended covenant. It is the new covenant. It's brand new. And so we want to understand this, that the continuation of the Old Testament is is in the sense that we take all of the principles from the Old Testament and do they apply? Absolutely. I preach from the Old Testament all the time. It's 75% of our Bible. The principles apply. But you are not under the law of Moses. Whose law are you under? Christ's. And so we want to be under, we understand this, Galatians 6, 2. And somebody says, you mean that the Ten Commandments are, are no longer binding? That's right, they're not. What is binding? The law of Christ. What is repeated in the New Testament, by the way? Nine out of ten commandments, and the Sabbath is coming back when Christ returns. So we'll get ten out of ten eventually. So, the nature of the law... I, because the reason I'm taking time on this, if you take a little time to read some commentaries as you're, as you're in your own reading, and if you even look at your study notes, if you have um, study Bibles, they're going to talk about moral law, ceremonial law, civil law, as if, it's, as if it's a well-known fact. It is not a well-known fact. It was made up by people. So just take that with a big grain of salt. Now, we have a little bit of time, and I want to give you a few applicational thoughts. Just a couple. The issue is not, are we under the law? Because the free grace movement, will, they, want to, they want to couch the argument in that way. Are we under the law, meaning the law of Moses? And we'll say, well, of course not. They would say, then we are free in Christ. Free in Christ, they would define as do whatever you want because you're forgiven anyway. That's not the right question. The right question is not, are we under the law? The issue is, which law are we under? And we are under the law of Christ. Now, do you see how this presents a problem if you've grown up being taught that um, people in the Old Testament were saved by obeying the law? We don't want to be under that, right? I, I don't want to be under a system that I, I'm going to fail in. And so we would, we would push back against that and say, yes, you are under the law, just not the law of Moses. The New Testament clearly shows that the Mosaic law has come to an end. We're not the new Israel. We're not the true Israel. But God has made Israel's redeemer. and He's made the work of the Messiah available to the Gentiles. We've said this before. um, The law of Moses was not God's means to bring ultimate blessing to Israel. It was perfect, but it was incomplete. It wasn't finished. Christ alone will bring that ultimate blessing. And Moses even says this in Deuteronomy. He says, a prophet like me will come. And the implication is right at the end of the Pentateuch that he's going to finish what I started. In Christ, we have, the fulfilled, we, we have fulfilled the Old Testament law. In, in other words, Christ did fulfill the law. It's very important. Galatians 4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under what? The law. So that in Christ, you can say, I have kept the Ten Commandments. You can say, I have kept every one of the 600 and so laws of the Old Testament in Christ. Because he did. He kept them perfectly. Perfectly. The same God has given us stipulations in the New Testament that we're to follow out of love for God. So are we under the law of Moses? No. Are we under law? The requirement by God to live holy lives set apart to Him. Yes, we are. And so let's not be cultural by saying, well, I'm under grace, not law. That's true, but grace brings us under the law of Christ. Let's be accurate. It is, which system are you under? Anybody here uh, born in Bethlehem? Nope. Anybody here born in Hebron or Beersheba or Dan? No. So we are so privileged. Do you realize like how privileged we are to be given a means by which to express our love to God? Like husbands, you know this. You know that when your wife says to you, here are three things you can do that would express love to me. We're so thankful because we, we didn't have to think it up. We didn't have to, oh, she, when she says, "I, you don't love me, what are we saying? Just tell me how, please. God has given such a gift in the law of Christ that if you want to love Jesus, husbands, love your wives. If you want to love your, your Lord, wives, submit to your husbands. If you want to prove your love for your Savior, children, obey your parents as to the Lord. You want to show your love for the head of the church, obey your elders. He's given you a means by which you express love. And you notice, and I looked for this once, there's not one time in the New Testament that you're commanded to say, I love you, Jesus. He doesn't want words, he wants action. He wants the the action of his people. So are we under the law? Yes, the glorious law of Christ. Now, this is no longer a problem when we understand That neither law, the law of Moses or the law of Christ, provided salvation. No law provides salvation. It is the means by which we show our obedience. Which, by the way, we'll take one little uh, quick little detour here Ezekiel 40 through 48. Parts of the law return when Christ is back on earth. They return to Israel. Temple worship returns. The priesthood returns. The Sabbath returns. Why does this return specifically to ethnic Israel? Why is the law coming back? Even sacrifices are returning. Why is that? It's not to undo the work of Christ. It's not to go backwards. All of these things return because this is in essence, God saying, okay, Israel, you've messed everything up for all of history. Now you're a redeemed nation. Let's get it right this time. And out of love for Christ, they will obey the law. Now we're not told what happens after the millennial kingdom, but they get a do-over. If you're a good parent, when your child won't clean his room and he finally gets spanked enough to say, yes, I'll clean my room, what do you do? Okay, let's do it right now. So the millennial kingdom very much is a do-over for Israel. It's a glorious return to um, obeying the law, not because it provides salvation, but because it is an expression of love. And you read Ezekiel 40 through 48. It is so exciting. This massive temple with music and musicians and worship and, and Christ himself there. It will be a glorious day. So what we are to do though. Use Deuteronomy as a warning. let say I don't want to be like Israel. I don't want to be like Israel. I want to hearken to the New Testament with my whole heart. I want to read my New Testament. I want to obey it. I want to Obey the Lord for my good and for my benefit. Deuteronomy is very much the same as the New Testament in this regard. God takes deadly seriously the sin of his people. That has not changed. That has not changed at all. See also, we read this in our family last night, Acts chapter five. We were excited to read about the first deaths in the church and they were pretty exciting. It was two liars in the church that Peter said, you're gonna die at this moment. Boom, and they're gone because God takes sin deadly seriously. First Corinthians 11 very applicable for today that we don 't take the lord 's table without a cleansed heart, without humility, without degradation of self before God, because God said in first Corinthians eleven because you are doing this, some of you are even dying, so we take sin seriously, so Deuteronomy is not a dusty history book that we go well i 'm glad that doesn 't apply to me philosophically and and ethically it applies as if it was written today, and so I hope that 's encouraging to you. Great, fabulous book. Hope you enjoyed your time going through Deuteronomy. Next week, we will go back to theology proper too and we're gonna look at the divine nature. So that, that'll be a good time together. Let's pray briefly. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious Pentateuch and we've now finished walking through the Torah in Bible Training Institute. And Lord, I pray that we would never see it the same, that we would always be thankful for this bedrock of foundation upon which the rest of the Bible is built. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name, amen.